from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our podcast. Yeah. Hi, everyone. We're happy to be with you, and I'm happy to be with you, Wendy. I'm happy to be with you, too. As part of our little banting that we do at the beginning of our episodes, I have a story that I want to share, and I haven't even shared it yet with you, Wendy. I, I just want to tell our listeners something. Christopher yes. started to tell me something earlier today, and then he caught himself, and he said, oh, wait, I'm going to tell you that on the podcast episode. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering what it is. You're wondering what it is. And it's <laughs> it's it's a sad story with a happy ending, but it leaves you still kind of, oh, my gosh, that's really sad but happy, too. Okay. A friend of mine told me the story about his aunt and uncle mm-hmm. who only married in their 60s. Okay. So in their 60s, he says to her, why did you laugh at me when I asked you to marry me in our 20s? 40 years earlier. Wow. Wow. 40 years earlier, he had asked her to marry him, Mm -hmm. and she laughed. Mm. And it took him 40 years to gain the courage to ask, why did you laugh? They remained friends the whole time. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in their 60s, he asked this question, and she says, because I thought you were joking i couldn't imagine you were serious wow and they got married soon thereafter oh my goodness but it it took them 40 years to clarify this Mm. painful tragic misunderstanding wow i think there's various things we can take from this and i've been pondering this story since i've heard it some days ago maybe a week ago I'm part of it. And, you know, you can't know for sure what was going on in all of their those dynamics. But I wonder, did, did she feel maybe unlovable or he can't possibly love me? And she kind of laughed because she was uncomfortable or afraid to go there or, or what? And did he, I, this would be my guess, like he, got, he made himself so vulnerable in asking that question, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't, yeah, I've, I've asked a woman to marry me. Remember that, Wendy? I do. Yeah. And it's incredibly vulnerable to put that question out there uh, and to be laughed at in that place of utter vulnerability. Man, like the turtle goes back in its shell and it seems to me like it, that the turtle was so wounded, it took 40 years for that turtle to come back out mm. of his shell. Mm-hmm. And you think, wow, what would their lives had been? What would their lives have been if they had cleared that up? Or who knows? I mean, it does have a happy ending. They did get married. Yeah. But wow. Yeah. What how does that how does that land on you when, when you hear that story for the first time? It's it's only it's just too little of the story for me to know what yeah. quite to think. Like I would like to meet them and hear it from them yeah. and just kind of get more of the details, but it's very interesting that they had remained friends, yeah. and yet it took that long for that question to be asked and answered. Um, you know, just how that 
certainly was lingering for him all that time. You know, we don't really know what her heart was, but it's clear from the question he asked that it he had never forgotten that. Yeah. And I, I asked my friend, I felt the same way, like, oh, I, what, what about this or what about that? What happened? And I asked my friend, can you get more details on the story? Like, I really want to understand the story better. And he said he would try. Okay. So I don't know how old they are now, but they're uh -huh. still alive. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, it's, I, it's, it could be made into a movie. <laughs> yeah, it could. I want to bring something up that we've been talking about on our past few episodes, which is the campaign for uh, funding sterilization reversals. Do you have any updates for us about that? I do. I want to give a shout out to those who have contributed. We're very grateful. Um, but we still have a long way to go. We have had so many requests for funding so that husbands, wives can get their sterilizations reversed. Uh, if you would please prayerfully consider making a contribution, even if it's $10 or $100,000, uh, that's, actually that's what we need to raise, and we, we still have a long, long way to go. So please help us out to help these other people out who are coming to us at the Institute to, to really change their lives and to be open to life again. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. But I do want to say also we have some exciting courses coming up, both online and in person. I'd encourage you to look at the link below and also check out our pilgrimages. This summer we are going to the U.K., uh, England, to follow in the footsteps of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Bill Dunahy is going to be leading that pilgrimage. Mike Mangione will be the musical uh, contributor on that pilgrimage. And then we are doing a pilgrimage in September to Rome, to Assisi, to Rome, to Florence, to Venice. Uh, check out all the details. Would love, love, love to have you on one of our pilgrimages. Pilgrimages are a life changing experience for people. So, yeah, check out the details. That's mm, all I have to say about yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Uh, are you ready for a question from a patron? I am ready for a question from a patron. I have one. This is from Kelsey. Hello, Kelsey. Dear Christopher and Wendy, thank you very much for your podcast. If I got to go out to eat with any famous person or people in the whole world, it would be you two. <laughs> you inspire me so much, and I would be honored to meet you someday. Well, Kelsey, maybe we should plan that. <laughs> maybe we should. If, you know, you never know. At least if you come to a live event, you can certainly meet Christopher. Or so if you come to a course here at Black Rock Retreat true. Center, Wendy I... and I will tell you right. We, Wendy and I will have a meal with you. How about that? All right, Kelsey. You you remind us of that when you it's come. It's a date. Okay? Here, here we go. Here's my question. My husband and I have four children ages seven and under. The oldest is a boy, followed by girl, boy, and girl. The youngest is only five months old, so I'm still breastfeeding. I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I homeschool my kids. In our home life, for some reason, we have sort of adopted an open-door bathroom policy. Not on purpose, but it just seems like everyone uses the bathroom with the door open, showers with the door open, the kids take baths together so they see each other's genitals and it's normal to them. I usually never get an 
uninterrupted shower without a kid sticking his head in the shower curtain to ask a question. (laughs) I breastfeed around our home without a nursing cover just because it's easier. I just wondered if there's a certain age where this style of living is not good. It feels normal and natural to us now because everyone has purity of heart and our children haven't been influenced by the pervertedness of our culture yet. Is there a certain age, though, that a young boy should not see his mom with no clothes on? Or at what age should siblings of opposite sex not take baths together? I just feel like our home is a sacred little piece of the Garden of Eden with the sacred innocence of our children, and I want to cling to that as long as possible. Kelsey, I love it, love it, love it, love it, love, 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 love it. I think what you're sharing is beautiful, wholesome, pure, uh, life-giving, and I think you are sparing your children a heck of a lot of grief later on. Um, It reminds me similar things in our household. Uh, We have much older children now, and I can tell you this, you are describing very similar reality to the way our young kids were and we were with our young kids. And there came an age when things kind of naturally shifted. There was not an abrupt shift. It was not like, well, you've reached your such and such a birthday and you are no longer allowed to see me or your mother naked when we're in the shower. Uh, It wasn't that. It was just naturally kind of went in that direction. And I think, I mean, I can only speak from our experience. That's the way it went down. And I, I can't look back and say, well, I remember when it changed. It just kind of naturally evolved. Um, the kids got to an age where they kind of felt on their own. They wanted to reverence the bathroom a little bit more and not just barge in if I was in the shower or their mom was in the shower. Um, and a natural sense of, um, you know, not wanting to go into the bathroom when a sibling was there. And I can't remember, Wendy, did we have to have like specific instruction about that? I don't. I think it just unfolded. What do you remember of this? I have some funny things to share yeah. about that. One thing I remember is that we, when our kids were little, we were very careful to check them for ticks oh, right. at bedtime because yep. we just live in an area where there's a lot of Lyme that, disease. The, talk about getting into the nooks and crannies <laughs> of naked bodies. And so I can remember being at the pediatrician and the pediatrician kind of would if I brought several kids in, he would sometimes have this instinct, which I don't have a problem with his instinct, to wonder if if he was going to examine one child, did I want to take the other children out of the room? And the ages that they were at the time, I remember saying to him, oh, believe me, we do whole body tick checks every (laughs) night at bedtime. They're okay. And he kind of looked a little surprised. And that was a little light to me. Like, I guess not every family, you know, the kids are used to seeing each other, but they were all pretty young. I think one of the steps in the process for us was when a child is old enough to be taught to take a shower on his or her own. Maybe that's around eight or nine years old. I don't know. They don't need you to bathe them anymore. And that becomes part of their just growing up. You know, things happen in stages, and that's part of it. I think also we happen to have two boys first, which kind of prolongs a certain, there's certain like same gender, you know, comfort with bodies that's different from mixed gender. So um, I think those changes came with time. Um, 
some things that I had discovered along the way that were maybe little disadvantages of this style of um, home life. One was that they didn't have the instinct to knock on a closed door right, that they right. should have had. We did had. have to teach some of those things. That's so, right. So like when a grandparent is staying with you and right. they don't want to have a kid just walking in the bathroom on them, you know, we needed to yes, teach that I and, do remember and that. practice it. So mm-hmm. that is just a, a thing that you can't just tell them and they're going to remember. They need to start practicing it. So if the door is all the way closed, you knock, you don't right. barge in, that kind of thing. I also know like just even the instinct, because we live in the country, like to pull shades or curtain when you're changing that they didn't necessarily have. Yeah, we have. didn't have that here. You know, so it's funny the things that... Or uh, urinating outside. Like we live in the woods <laughs> and right. the boys, especially when they're out playing, they just whip it out and pee <laughs> on a tree. And and then we'd go to a neighborhood, you know, in the city and our kids were just used to whipping it out and peeing on a tree and we had to provide a little instruction there. Right. Yeah. So there are things that we, as parents, we're trying to prepare our children to function in the world and to learn how to, you know, respect the boundaries of other human beings. Uh, So I think all of that is um, part of just the process of parenthood and raising children and and just to be aware of, you know, those are some things that they they need to learn. Um, And I think, too, for us, seeing um, their mother nursing their siblings is such a help. Yeah. To understanding our bodies as a gift. Sacred gift to provide for the siblings. So I don't think anybody needs to apologize for not using a nursing cover at home. I think that is used in public places for the sake of just unknown people around. But with your children, I think it's absolutely the right thing for them to witness it, to see it. As beautiful because yeah, it is. It is. It is. Remember, we went to the World Meeting of Families in Rio de Janeiro. Yes, 1997. 1997. I John do. Paul II was there. And the World Meeting of Families means literally people from around the world are there with their families. And it was very interesting that women from mothers from developed nations would kind of gather in a certain corner with their draperies and cloths covering as they breastfed. But there were a few, I remember one woman in particular from not a developed country who had her baby on a front pack and she just walked around the the meeting where the Pope was with her breast hanging out and this this toddler, like a two-year-old, just double-fisted, grabbed her breast and was sucking away. And it's a little jar. It was a little jarring, like just because I'm not used to that. But it was so healing. It was so um, so right setting. I, I, I don't know if that's the right expression, but it, it was setting me right. It was. It was. You know, I had a lot of wrong ideas about a woman's body, and to to see this is what a woman's body is made to do. Uh, it's not a pornographic reality. It's a theographic reality. It reveals a divine mystery. And that woman's um, comfort, comfortableness with her own motherhood there, I thought, was a beautiful witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's understandable also that in countries where pornography is so rampant, where we pornified the breast, that 
women thought they needed to go over into a corner and cover up. Um, and, and, you know, I want to be sensitive because we have such a perverse understanding of a woman's body. When a woman feels a need to cover because she's afraid she's going to be objectified, I, I get that. I get that. That's the, the right response. But um, it can also be a tremendous witness when a woman understands the dignity and beauty and uh, loveliness of breastfeeding to, to feed her baby when the baby needs to be fed, not in a flaunting way, but in a, a way that's just comfortable. And certainly in the family, I, I, I would hope that that would be encouraged because there's a curiosity that other kids naturally have, siblings naturally have when a, when a, a young sibling is still breastfeeding. Uh, they want to understand what's going on here. And if there's a no, you're not allowed, or no, this is private, or it, it gives this can give this impression that something shameful is happening, um, and that that can create a whole series of problems later on. I'll tell you just one more story, and then we can move on. But I think it's pertinent. I hear lots of stories because of the work I do, and people share what they've been through. And uh, I remember someone who was very wounded. Um, because up to a certain age, seeing his mother coming in and out of the bathroom or changing her clothes was normal. But then there was just this one day when this person's mother decided, I don't want my son to see me changing anymore. Or, you know, and that's, I get it. But the way it was handled was, didn't go so well. Uh, so he comes into the bedroom one day, hadn't knocked on the door because that wasn't the custom. And there he saw his mother coming out of the bathroom naked and his mother, having never done this before, kind of scurried and said, go away, go away, I'm naked, and grabbed a towel, and and he felt like he had violated his mother. Mm. Um, and that caused a lot of internal trials for that boy who grew into a man, and um, mm. there is an appropriate age, I think, that will come naturally, but there does maybe does need to be some gentle instruction a all of a sudden tomorrow is the day that I'm not going to let my children see me naked anymore without any warning or out any uh, family conversation about it uh, can be can be damaging. So mm -hmm. I just hold that story out. Yeah. Kelsey, thank you so much for, for bringing this question to us. I, I hope what we shared has been helpful and I hope our listeners have maybe had their thoughts about it also expanded a little bit. And I, I want to encourage you, Kelsey, as a mom... It is not too soon. You are a patron, so you have access to, to all of these programs that we offer our patrons, and we have several resources on there specifically for parents to help bring this message to their children. Mm. So please, Kelsey, take advantage of that. And if there's anyone out there who wants to take advantage of those resources, please check out the patron link in the show notes. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. I'm currently in RCIA and will be received into full communion with the church at Easter of 2024. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Hooray! My husband is supportive of me becoming Catholic, but is himself not currently interested in converting, nor is he entirely comfortable with Catholicism in general. As someone who grew up Protestant, I totally understand his hesitation. I want to honor his beliefs and feelings about our current situation, but I also want to step into what I believe God wants for our marriage— and fertility. I'm torn as to how to balance the two. How do I have this conversation with my husband without making 
him feel as if my beliefs are bulldozing his? How do I honor the feelings, beliefs, and concerns of my spouse with my own desire to conform my life to the church's teaching? Do I just stop birth control, cold turkey? Or do I work on learning about NFP first? And how do I do all this without living in mortal sin? I want to stop birth control because of the beauty I see in being able to know my own body. I want to let my body's theology fully declare the love of Christ. Glory. That's awesome. To fully give my entire self to Him in the marital act. I also struggle with scrupulosity and am scared of dying and being damned because I use contraception. In short, I feel really stuck right now. I want to honor my sweet husband and make sure he knows that I sincerely care about his voice in this conversation. And I also want to honor our Lord and make sure that I'm trying to live according to what his church teaches. I really need help understanding all of this as a brand new Catholic convert in a mixed religious marriage. Please help. Bless you, dear sister. Bless you, dear sister. An amazing, amazing work of grace is underway in your life. Beautiful. Uh, I just encourage you to sing songs of praises to God Mm. because grace is flowing, flowing like a river. And I just sense your openness to it. I want to address first that scrupulosity issue. Uh, I want to touch on that and then move on to some other very important things that you raised. You coming into the church, will soon have access to the sacrament of confession. Trust. Trust that when you bring this into the light in the confessional, as far as the East is from the West, so is your sin from you. We do Jesus a terrible disservice when we hold on to the sins uh, that he wants to forgive us of, right? And and when I say hold on to the sins, I'm not saying holding on to continue to commit them, but but refusing to receive his mercy. Right? We do Jesus a terrible disservice and injustice by refusing to believe in his mercy, by refusing to let his forgiveness in there to wash us clean. He longs, he aches. He pines for us to rejoice in receiving his mercy. And even as I say that, I see ways that I myself have to let that mercy in more deeply. So, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Uh, Having said that, let me move on to some of the other things you raised. You asked, do I quit birth control cold turkey? Let's rephrase it from this perspective. Do we quit sin? cold turkey? Should we give up sin gradually? Or should we give it up? Now, there's a, there's a certain reality of our sinfulness, our sinful attitudes, that we can't just say, well, uh, I'm not going to think that way anymore. Because there's leftovers, right? Even when we repent of sinful attitudes, there are leftovers, and those sinful attitudes can linger And there can be a lifetime, indeed, there is a lifetime of purifying our minds, our hearts, our attitudes. But when it comes to behaviors, yeah, when we realize something is mortally sinful, 
we shouldn't take a gradual approach to to giving it up. Um, we should cry out for the grace to give it up, give it up right away, um, and cry out, Lord, I need your grace to do this, but I, I am not going to compromise with sin here. I am not going to um, pussyfoot with sin here. I'm, I'm not going to dip my toe back in here. I, I want, Lord, by your grace to be free from this. Now, this is complicated in an additional sense and an additional way because the sin we're talking about here is rendering the marital act sterile. And there are two people involved here. And it sounds like from what you're sharing that your husband might not be on board with this. What I would invite you to Uh, I have a book written for Protestants called Our Bodies Tell God's Story. And in very Protestant-friendly language, it will walk you through what the Christian churches, all of them, taught and understood up until 1930 about the immorality of contraception. And oftentimes, just walking through the history with Protestant brothers and sisters and, and showing them for 1,930 years, every Christian denomination was unanimous in its condemnation of contraception. So for the last 90 whatever years, are we to believe that modern Christians got it right and for 1,930 years, the other Christians had it all wrong? If contraception had borne beautiful, wonderful fruit, and 90-whatever years later, uh, marriages were much healthier, and society was flourishing, and our approach to sexuality was beautiful and wonderful, and, and it had borne wonderful fruit, this global embrace of contraception, I'd say, yeah, they were wrong for 1,930 years. But look what has happened in the last 90 years. The utter, almost total collapse of marriage and family life and an almost total eclipse of the very meaning of being male and female. Jesus said, judge the tree by its fruit. The evidence is in. And when that evidence is unfolded, which I do in this book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, for Protestants, eyes can be opened. I think you have every reason to hope because of your fidelity to the Lord and because of the sincerity of your husband, from what you're sharing, he seems like a good man, with a committed Christian faith, a seeker, right? I think you have very good reason to hope and believe that your fidelity here will bring about the opening of the eyes of your husband. Not overnight, probably will take time, but I invite you to go on that journey. And you have no obligation to submit to sexual activity that is contrary to your dignity as a woman. And you could say something to your husband like this, Honey, I long to give myself to you sexually in the most beautiful, potent, powerful, passionate way possible. But rendering our sexual acts sterile prevents me from doing that. And out of love for me, I ask you, please, will you go on a journey with me of discovery and, and to invite him in that way, you're not bulldozing him. You're not bulldozing his beliefs with your beliefs. 
See, it's it, it, even to phrase it that way, even to put it that way, is to fail to recognize objective truth, right? If there's no such thing as objective truth, if it just comes down to his beliefs versus your beliefs, well, without objective truth, might makes right, right? If there's no objective reality outside of ourselves to which we are all answerable, then all we got is whoever's more convincing or more powerful or has a stronger bulldozer to bulldoze the other person into believing what I believe or living what I want the other person to live. But that's to miss reality. Reality is objective. The immorality of contraception is objective, and it can be discovered as such by reasonable human beings. Invite your husband on that reasonable quest for the objective truth. And truth, truth does not impose itself on us. Jesus, who says, I am the truth, is also the God who is love. And love does not impose itself. Love proposes itself. So propose to your husband this journey and trust that grace will be at work. Those are my initial thoughts. Wendy, what, what, are, what are you wanting to share here? I was so struck, and I know you were too, my love, when she said why she wants to stop yeah. birth control. Uh, the beauty she sees in being able to know her own body, which has to do with the practicals of learning natural family planning, have to do with really understanding what our bodies are telling us about our uh, fertility and when in our female cycle we are capable of conceiving a child, that is a wonderful it's gift. It's glorious, tremendous gift to me as a man, a tremendous gift to me as a man to know you that well. And it gives us just a, a, an awe of God's goodness. Um, and she also said she wants her body's theology to fully declare the love of Christ, and she wants to fully give her entire self to her husband. Whoop, whoop, whoop. What amazing yeah. desires. And that I think part of that is why you said at the beginning, like yes. the river of river graces. Of graces. Yeah, yeah, so beautiful. And I think so helpful for you to um, communicate those things to your husband who loves you, you know, to be able to share that, those things with him. The practicals of, like, how do we transition from contraception to natural family planning are real questions. And I think there are probably too many ways to learn about natural family planning in one sense, because with the internet, we just kind of get all kinds of search results that some of which are not the most helpful. I I hope that you, in your process with RCIA, have met um, other Catholic couples who are using natural family planning, um, or that through your diocese, you can be connected with the natural family planning coordinator or marriage and family coordinator for your diocese. It is wonderful to journey from contraception to natural family planning with the help of a real human teacher and not just trying to teach yourself through some, I don't know, kind of online resource that isn't connecting you with a person who can answer your questions. I really do recommend that. When a person stops using contraception, especially if it's a hormonal form of contraception, 
the the cycle takes time to recover from that um, having been kind of overridden by what was taken into the body. And so it, it is just really helpful to decipher what our bodies are telling us during those transitions with someone who's very knowledgeable. It's very peace-giving. It's very just uh, helps you to go step-by-step. Step. So um, I just wanted to share those thoughts about that transition um, and also about just what a gift that you have to share with your husband about your reasons for this desire, um, which are beautiful and true. Wonderful. I want to comment on her expression, cold turkey. It strikes me that, you know, we use that expression, cold turkey, when, when we're talking about, you know, an, an alcoholic who has to stop drinking or a smoker who stops smoking cold turkey. Mm. And and I wonder, I, I certainly don't intend to read into their situation here um, in an inappropriate way. But I, I think, you know, our words, the words that we choose are telling. And I wonder if this wife feels a certain need for a, a detoxification um, like you, you said, Wendy, you know, getting off the pill, the body has to adjust. Yeah. But there's also a spiritual detoxification that we need when we've been using contraception because this is no minor thing. And I, I'm not saying this at all to wag fingers or scold or shame anybody. I'm saying it to turn the lights on so that we can see what we're really dealing with. When we understand the holiness, the sacredness, the sacramentality of the marital embrace, we recognize that willfully rendering it sterile is, is a sacrilegious act. And, and this is not about assigning culpability uh, because most people simply don't know what they're doing. And I can hear Christ's words from the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. But we... we, we whether we know it or not, right? If, if I drink a glass of poison and I don't know it's poison, I'm not guilty of, of suicide, but it'll still kill me. And there's still toxins in my blood that I need to, you know, deal with now. I guess if it's killing me, I'm dead and I don't need to deal with it. But you know what I'm saying. Um, and it's the same with, with sin, like especially in a marriage and in, in the most sacred act of the marriage, marital embrace in the marriage bed, when we've brought something sacrilegious to, to, to bear there, we are in need of a spiritual detoxification. And it may be the case that if you've been on chemical contraception and you're stopping, please God, you are, um, not only will you need a spiritual, excuse me, a physical detoxification, but there will need to be a time of abstinence, maybe even an extended time of abstinence, for your cycle to recover. And that extended time of abstinence can also be an occasion of great graces in your marriage, a kind of detoxification spiritually from that sacrilege that knowingly or unknowingly, and I, I can assume here unknowingly, has been part of, of your marriage bed. And you might immediately think, oh, my husband will never go for that. And maybe that's where that expression cold turkey comes in because if your husband will never go for that, there's a sign that he's not master of himself. 
And this is why we bring contraception into the marriage bed to begin with, because we, 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 we don't want to gain mastery of our desires. I'll, I'll often say, why do we spay and neuter our dogs and cats? Why don't we just ask them to abstain? Well, because they can't, because they're animals. Well, what are we doing to ourselves when we spay and neuter ourselves with contraception? We are reducing ourselves to the level of instinct, right? The, the, the sexual desire becomes something I'm not master of, and I just indulge in. That's what contraception affords. And that's very, very damaging to our inner being and our outer being, our whole being. And this is an invitation to freedom for your husband. Right? Sexual freedom is not the, the, the liberty to indulge our compulsions. True sexual freedom is liberation from the compulsion to indulge. And that expression cold turkey may indicate just a, a kind of intuition about a certain addictive level of the sexual instinct here that we're called to freedom, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. This is going to be a difficult journey, but it's going to be an extremely liberating journey. Freedom from the compulsion to indulge so that your yes to the marital act can be a true, loving yes. The river of graces is flowing. Keep, keep going. Mm. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Hello, I'm a single man. I've heard married people talk about there being a danger of worshiping one's spouse. I intuitively sense this could be a real danger, but I can't find any information on what this might look like, both in the world and in the inward disposition of my heart. This is something I want to be aware of for the future, but I also thought it could be helpful for your listeners who are married. Uh, thank you so much for this question. And Wendy, you and I have plenty to say about it from our own experience. Yeah, let's just approach it from this angle that every icon, and what's an icon? It's an earthly window to heaven, right? Marriage is a beautiful icon of a heavenly reality. But there's a danger precisely in a, in a or, or more especially we could say in a good marriage, uh, there's a danger of turning that icon into an idol. Precisely because the icon gives such a beautiful vision of heaven, we can mistake the window to heaven for heaven itself. And Wendy, you are a beautiful window to heaven for me. That made me smile. You are really, truly such a beautiful window to heaven. And because you are such a beautiful window to heaven, I have been guilty in our relationship of idolizing our icon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I know I have when I'm expecting something out of you that only God can give me. I know I have when I'm disappointed that you're not meeting my every need or when I resent you for not being what I think I need you to be. Mm. And those kind of attitudes were, were very... Um, par for the course in early years of our marriage. And I, 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 I'm pretty sure they went both ways. Mm -hmm. 
And it took us on a long journey, painful journey, of recognizing the ways that both you and I had had demanded the other be something we could never be for each other. And I would imagine a lot of our listeners know this story. If you have read some of my books or come to my courses, I, I often tell this story because I know other couples find it very, very helpful. And even single people, as this questioner has pointed out, this can be very, very helpful for single people. And um, if you can learn these lessons before you get married, all the better. And I thought I had learned them. Like I had the right theology in my head when we got married. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, our, our marriage is a sacrament. It's not the ultimate reality. It's an icon. Got to make sure we don't turn the icon into an idol. Get it, got it good. But nonetheless, way down in there at an unconscious level, there is such a cry of the heart for perfect love and perfect happiness and perfect fulfillment. And we're not wrong to have that desire. But we are wrong, and we will be greatly disillusioned if we aim that desire for perfect love, perfect happiness, perfect fulfillment at an imperfect human being. Do the math on that. Yeah. And you'll realize you're hanging your hat on a hook that cannot bear the weight when you expect another human being to be perfect happiness, perfect love, perfect fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Only God can be that for us. You and I had to learn those lessons the hard way. And years into our marriage, maybe what, 12 years into our marriage, 14 years, I don't remember exactly when, 15 years, we were out to dinner and we had been on quite a journey. And you said to me, honey, something's different. Something's good in recent months and even maybe recent years. And you said, don't you feel it? And I said, yeah, I do. I do. Mm. And you said, what do you think it is? And I thought about it for a moment. And I, I said, I think I finally realized deep in my heart, Wendy, that you can't satisfy me. And you smiled and laughed and, and said... Yeah, you can't satisfy me either. <laughs> right. That's we were both learning the same lessons that that we had been expecting the other to be God in some ways. Mm. And we were learning through painful trials and we still have to learn these lessons. You can never say I've arrived. Mm. We can certainly look back and say, "Man, we've come a long way." But we can look ahead and say, "Man, we got a long way to go." Um, but yeah, we've come a long way. And, and, and we had come a, a good ways of our journey at that point, and we were learning to take our heavy hands off one another and, and accept the other more sincerely in his and her imperfections. And, and I often joke, you know, thinking if other people in the restaurant had heard what we were saying, they probably thought we were about to get divorced. But we never felt up to that point in our marriage closer because of those so important lessons we were learning. I, I felt free to be my broken self. Um, mm -hmm. Not that I wasn't also desiring of continuing my healing journey. Of course I was, but I realized I, at a new level, I was realizing, and I think you were too, we don't have to be perfect to be loved. And we don't have to demand, have to demand perfection of the other. Uh, and we shouldn't demand perfection of the other. Uh, and it's, an, it's, it's wrong to do so because then we're demanding the other be God. 
Uh, we're on a, on a road to perfection, and that is a lifelong journey, and we only reach it on the other side. We should take that journey seriously, uh, but a large, large part of that journey towards perfection is learning to accept our imperfection and the imperfection of others and love right there. Yeah, while you were talking there, I just kind of felt like I was partly sort of in the aud audience of, of uh, talk and just kind of uh, joining you and thanking God for all of that um, that he's taught us and thanking him for the fact that he's working with us all. He, he doesn't think, you know, he's not against us. He's for us. Amen. And we're not either 100% worshiping or 100% loving rightly we're we're a mix <laughs> and and the danger when when a married person says there's a danger of worshiping his or her spouse um for us what we've realized that means is is looking to our spouse for needs that the lord needs to meet for us right. and it's not a, for us anyway i don't experience that as a worship as sort of like you know you are already perfect and i am just in awe of your perfection it's more like i have all kinds of uh confusion and demands i'm placing on our relationship it's almost like worshiping the marriage and what that relationship right. should be for right. me what we somehow. thought it should be right yeah, that idolization of that. So, yeah, and the Lord is so merciful. I Thank mean, you, when Lord. we come to him and say, "Ugh, I know why I'm in this pain, Lord. You know why I'm in this pain. <laughs> I offer you my pain, and please set things right in my heart. Please bring good out of this painful reality I've partly created myself, yes, you know. Yes, through please, our own folly. Please, in your mercy, bring good out of it, you know, and keep teaching me, keep showing me how much you love me so that I can rightly love my spouse and be a channel of grace um, and be open to the grace that you bring me through him, but know that it's you, Lord. It's you. You're the one who is the source and the true fulfillment of my heart. That's, that's where I have to go in my prayer. Yeah. And it's been so helpful to recognize, number one, God's mercy. He, he meets us right where we are. And I would also say his, his tender redirection of our misdirected desires. There's a good desire in there. It's just been aimed at the wrong thing. And true worship, if you just pick apart that word, worship, it's worth-ship. We worship whatever we ascribe ultimate worth to. That's what we worship. And almost inevitably, what we worship is the thing we think is going to satisfy the deepest cry of our heart. God and only God can do that for us. And when we expect anything less than God to do that for us, we're guilty of false worship. And when we're guilty of false worship, it, the right word for that is idolatry. And we have this image of like bowing down before a golden calf or something. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be that to be idolatry. It's just what are your God substitutes? 
where are you where are you taking the deepest desire of your heart for satisfaction that's what you worship and if it's anything less than the real living god then it's a false god um and yeah wendy you've you've been a false god uh, our marriage has been a false god thank god that he wants to teach us how to worship in spirit and in truth mm. Amen. Just like the woman at the well, right? She had taken her her thirst to all those other lovers, right? She had been married five times and had a sixth lover. Uh, six, remember, is the imperfect biblical number. Seven is the perfect biblical number. Who was her seventh lover? Jesus. And when Jesus says, if you knew the gift that I wanted to give you, you would ask me for a drink. You would bring your thirst to me. See how tender he is there in redirecting her worship, redirecting her desire towards what will truly quench her thirst. We've experienced that same tenderness in our lives mm-hmm. and in our marriage too. Thank you, Lord, for your tenderness. And we lift up the person who asked this question and all our listeners that they would hear that tenderness and feel and experience that tender redirection of their desire from false fulfillment, from false infinities. That's how Pope Benedict XVI puts it. When we, when we idolize something, we're treating it as a false infinity because only the infinite can satisfy. Lord, redirect our desires from false infinities to true infinity. And the only true infinity is you. Thank you for wanting to share your infinity with us, Lord. Thank you for calling us to live your love and be a gift to one another. And thank you for giving us the grace to become what we are. Amen. Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.